This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. It's a new season here at WPRB, a new school year, a new return to routine from the carefree days of summer. Fall feels in many ways like a natural start to the year, more so than January. In the Jewish, Coptic, and Ethiopian Christian religious calendars, among others, including some Hindu cultural calendars, the year does start with autumn, with the harvest. The French revolutionaries had the same idea. And it's a pretty convincing one. Autumn means the reaping of the fruits of the year, ending a vacation in the sun, and returning to lives of work, study, and meaning-making. So this episode is a bit of a celebration of that, of the ways we can celebrate beginnings even when they don't fit the American Gregorian calendar. Beginnings informed by faiths, traditions, new technologies, and even moments of crisis. It's an episode of Genesis, new starts where you least expect them. Stick around, we've got some great stories for you tonight. Charlie Nurnberger and Henry Moses speak to art critic and writer Dean Kissick about the rise of AI-generated art and what this new path could mean for artistry and creation in the digital age. Clara McWeenie and Izzy Jacobson explore how activism for reproductive rights has resurged since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the summer and speak to those demonstrating for their bodily autonomy. Alan Plotz and Clara McWeeny learn more about the value of canvassing as a new election season begins and the risks, benefits, and lessons of a campaign. And I speak to religious leaders about the modern day culture of cynicism we see all around us. And I ask how we can change the narrative to find meaning and drive in our journey to improve the world. Stick around, we'll be right back. First on News & Culture, Charlie Nurnberger and Henry Moses speak to art critic and writer Dean Kissick about the rise of AI-generated art and what this new path could mean for artistry and creation in the digital age. We first learned of AI image generation over the summer on Twitter, where more or less delinquent accounts reproduced images from prompts as vague and bizarre as Playboy Cardi shaking hands with Vladimir Lenin and Krungus. It wasn't until an AI-generated piece, Théâtre d'Opéra Spéciale, won an award at a Colorado State Fair in September that our interests shifted into more serious deliberation on the opportunities provided by AI-assisted art. To learn more, we reached out to art critic and writer Dean Kissick. Dean Kissick is the New York editor for the Berlin-based Spike magazine. In this capacity, he writes a monthly column entitled The Downward Spiral that touches on contemporary arts and culture and anything that piques Dean's interest. In July of 2022, he wrote a piece on text-to-image AI art. Having trained in London at the Courtauld Institute and the Royal College, Dean's writings are deeply informed by the whole of art history, so he figured speaking to him would allow us to get into the proper headspace to contextualize and understand what is actually happening with AI-generated works of art. We first asked him to outline both the history and the mechanisms of how text-to-image AI generations work. I'm no expert in it myself, but I, but I find it really interesting. And I tried to learn enough writing the column just so I could kind of expl- uh, understand and 
hopefully explain on a basic level how text to image AI works. Um, but so I wrote about text to image AI, which is like a specific, specific technology for creating images by entering a text prompt. And then the program will generate like a variety of different images from that. And you can choose the one you like, or you can choose to kind of keep rendering variations on one, choose to keep kind of rendering it in um, higher resolutions. So essentially like you use a prompt to generate the image and then you keep on kind of refining, keep on iterating from there and experimenting and hopefully maybe finding the image you wanted or finding something completely different that you find interesting. Uh, that's what I wrote about and I wrote about it because it's something that became like, uh, and is still, I think, like has just been a huge story of this year. Mm. Like it wasn't something I'd ever really heard of, uh, at least text to image AI, I hadn't heard of before this year, but I started to see it everywhere, see a lot of it over Twitter in particular, um, in other places too. I heard a lot, especially about Mid Journey and Dali, Dali too. So those were what I was writing about. Um, yeah, like you say, since I published the piece, there's, I guess, some other, some other kind of uh, similar projects have emerged and I've started to see some like crazy, crazily good looking um, AI generated images just, just in the past couple of months. Some of them generated by different things. After speaking about the structures of the softwares, we asked Dean about the ethical implications of the programs. Is AI art generation subject to the same skepticism about its ethics as other forms of artificial intelligence? A lot of that is quite opaque. Um, a lot of that, a lot of that information isn't isn't out there in the open. But I know, I I know like um, AI can be used in all sorts of ways, and it can be used in kind of sinister ways just as much as. Um, you know, kind of progressive or helpful ways. And I think it's used a lot in policing, for instance, or like kind of profiling. Um, companies like Palantir use it a lot. Um, because it, it can be like a real tool of like surveillance and control. But beyond any of that, I guess the way, the way AI, as I understand it, or at least the kinds we're talking about works is usually by training on a large data set. So the idea is that um, any kind of, I, I guess race is probably the main issue that comes up, um, kind of racism, sexism too, but any kind of like racial prejudice or biases that are present in the training set, which is gonna be like many millions of images in this case, like probably hundreds of millions of images will be replicated um, by the program, the program that's kind of using that data. So even if the program is um, programmed in a way where it's completely objective, uh, it, it can kind of reproduce unconscious or even conscious biases that are present in the data set. And that leads to problems of representation, just like um, if you're, for instance, if you put in like just happy man under a tree, then question is like, what 
well, say, what race is that man going to come out like? Or what are they going to look like? Chances are they're going to be white, I'd imagine. So you need to like, you need to kind of find ways, um, if it matters to you, you need to find ways to make these kind of new image making technologies more equitable. Um, but as I understand it, there's some problems with that. Uh, Google released their own uh, text to image AI called Imogen, maybe a few months ago. And they were, they were very worried about this kind of not having like fair representations um, coming out of their software, but they, they didn't really seem to be able to find a solution to that. So what they did was just, at least when they launched it, and I think it's probably still the case, they just banned all human representations at all. Like they kind of felt, we don't know how to solve the problem of representation. So we're just gonna like, make it illegal to generate images of humans with our software, which isn't a great solution, you know? Uh, it it's kind of seems very counterproductive to me. And if you look at the Google Imogens, um, yeah, just kind of like it, image set, the examples of what they can do that they highlight on their website, it's all like Pixar type animals. It's all like raccoons DJing, that kind of thing, like um, para, yeah, I mean, it's it's, <laughs> It's all right, but that doesn't seem like a great solution. Yeah. I also saw, and I forget, I forget which software this is. This might also not be true because it's just something I saw on Twitter, but there was an idea that one of these softwares was um, like a pending kind of race language um, onto people's text prompts without them asking for it. So like, you might put in man under a tree and then some percentage of those prompts will have in the process of generating like the program will add in like black man under a tree, things like that to kind of artificially force like a more equitable representation that's not present in the what people are asking for or in like the program itself. Dean's article has three main theses that make up his take on AI generated art. For one, he keys in on the built-in inability to include ourselves in the pieces, that is, our faces. It's just interesting, right? Because so much of um, selfie culture has is, is so become so dominant um, in how we make images, in, in how we like express ourselves, even just how we communicate with one another. Um, even now, like I know it's not a selfie, but we're here looking at pictures of one another on the screen, like communicating from a distance. Uh, and that is quite recent. The, it hasn't been that long we've had iPhones with front-facing cameras and the kind of selfie phenomenon, I think is about, you know, a bit, a bit more than a decade old, but it's actually a very recent phenomenon, but it's really changed the world and changed how we think about ourselves I think so the, to have this new, um, very powerful and probably gonna become like a very big new form of imaging technology that doesn't allow, doesn't allow you to just like make images of yourself. Um, it's just interesting. It, it strips away all the like subjectivity because you can't make images of yourself, which are so popular now, but you also can't really express yourself 
or maybe you can it's a big question but you can't express yourself in the old artistic idea that like this line this color is like some expression of my inner being and subjectivity because the the software is making those decisions for you secondly in the piece he argues that in fact this type of ai generated art is a new type of literary art because because you it goes off text prompts then in theory as a writer it's kind of a new like a new form of writing cuz cuz you can kind of write some sentences and see them turn into another form and uh in theory that could lead to like you could start writing incredibly precise descriptions or you could start writing very lengthy scenes um that's not really where we're at now but it'll be be good to see where it goes i did try like i think you know just copy pasting like a couple thousand words from some story straight into the prompt to see to see what came out but it just came out like it would from like a four or five word prompt you know but as the yeah i mean as as the um technology develops maybe maybe you can like paste a whole book in there and that will somehow be synthesized as one image or made into like a, a movie for you or you know some abstract animation who knows he also adopts art critic clement greenberg's theory of kitsch and applies it to the new medium yeah kitsch i was specifically there's a very famous clement greenberg piece um avant-garde and kitsch which was written early 20th century and and his definition of kitsch is it's not a quote but a paraphrase his greenberg's definition of kitsch is something like derivative examples of low popular culture uh, that feed off of quote the availability close at hand of a fully matured cultural tradition whose discoveries acquisitions and perfect perfected self-consciousness kitsch can take advantage of for its own ends so it's kind of the idea of, of like remaking what's already there like it's um if the avant-garde is is trying to break through and create new ways of doing things then kitsch is kind of taking what's already done and just like remaking it potentially remaking it in like paler and paler forms um so a lot of a lot of the images and a lot of images made by ai like are kind of fit into this definition of kitsch and i think a lot of just contemporary art being made now and culture being made now also fits into this definition there's a lot of um there's a lot of just remaking of the past without without an uh, attempt to kind of move beyond it or even necessarily to do it as well as it was done in the past um the text to image well yeah text to image ai is kind of often kitsch in its output but it's it's also kind of inherently kitsch um in the way it works because it's like it's literally just using images from the past to generate new images and a lot of um a lot of kind of the interesting outputs you see people will be saying like oh can you make this image in the style of this artist like style of picasso style of uh cezanne like i've i've done a lot of that stuff myself 
and that's often how you get the most interesting results. And I've also, I've done a lot of just, rather than using the text prompts, just crossing images, because you can also just use image prompts. And again, it's, it's a very kitsch approach, like taking two paintings I like from the past and just getting the software to, um, to kind of cross them together, to, to kind of create like a, a new derivative form out of these like masterpieces from the past. Uh, but I, I do think that the software, the programs are doing something new. Like they are working, they are giving us a tool that we didn't have before. So I, d I definitely think they have the potential to move beyond Kitsch to kind of really allow com completely new ways of making images. That's probably, that's probably already happening. It's, it's, it's a weird form. It is, it's a technology that I think is at the same time, like very kitsch, very backward looking, and yet also just feels very innovative and com completely alien to any form of image making I've seen before. Finally, he formulated a new thesis for us about the future of the medium by taking a look back at other periods of art history. Personally, I think it's very exciting. Like there's, there's clear downsides to it, um, like, like with all forms of automation, but as someone who's interested in visual culture and interested in art and, and you're just kind of interested in beauty or like new forms of beauty, interesting new images, um, I, I think it's, I'm really, curious and fascinated to see where we go with this. Um, I guess one, so just thinking about it in terms of like pure formal history of art things, uh, history of art terms. One thing that I've always been interested in is, is how we had this explosion of kind of modernism and abstraction in painting. And this, this started more than a century ago now, but we kind of went to this point where we'd pretty much perfected uh, very realist painting, photorealist painting. And, and at that point, we kind of started going into more expressive forms, which became uh, more abstract forms. And it, that's kind of one of the points in history where painting got really interesting to me is when it kind of achieved fidelity to reality and then suddenly broke through into um, completely new forms of abstraction, like types of images that hadn't ever been seen before, I don't think, hadn't been made before. Um, and that's a point which I guess we're, we're approaching with digital image making, but haven't, haven't got to yet. You know, I, I remember like what video games looked like when I was a kid and what they look like now. Like it's, in, in a way, there's been this incredible advancement over like a few decades. And in another way, I kind of think oh, I'm surprised. I'm surprised they don't look better. Like I'm surprised we haven't achieved this kind of perfect, but they are getting very close to a point of like, like a very high realism. So I'd, I wanna see like just what comes after, like what, what kind of, because with CGI, with computer imaging software, we can we can make any kind of image or shape or world. We can make things that do not exist or have no referent in reality. Could build just just you know you can build whole new 
um, galaxies, universes, whatever you want, in theory. Uh, so I'm interested to Perhaps see that. Perhaps like us, you were dismissive of automated art at first. Will this make the artist's role in society less prominent? There's no skill or personality required to create one of these pieces. Perhaps, instead, we should give the pieces another chance. Throughout the whole of art history, transformations and innovations have taken place, and critics and bystanders have been outraged. But what came before the innovations has lasted, and what broke from tradition has too. Perhaps it's not the end of the world. You can read Dean's work on Spike Art Magazine's website or by Googling his name. You can reach him on Twitter or Instagram, at Dean Kissick. If you'd like to experiment with AI image generation for yourself, we've included a link for the Midjourney Discord in the episode description. For WPRB News and Culture, this has been Charlie Nuremberger and Henry Moses. Next on News and Culture, Clary McQueenie and Izzy Jacobson explore how activism for reproductive rights has resurged since the overturning of Roe v. Wade and speak to those demonstrating for their bodily autonomy. I was born in April of 1972, just a year before, a little less than a year before um, Roe v. Wade was passed. So I feel like students in their 20s and their teens, I think in their 30s, don't really understand that I was part of the rebirth, right? And I was part of um, a whole lifetime of freedom. And I think I just can't watch that go backwards. In the wake of the Supreme Court's overturn of Roe v. Wade, WPRB staffers Alan Plotz, Izzy Jacobson, and Claire McQueenie reported live from New York City's March for Reproductive Justice. Over 10,000 people gathered in Washington Square Park the Friday after the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health decision was released. This negated the constitutional right to abortion in tens of states, and many of them are still engrossed in legal battles today. These are just a few of the stories we heard that day. As a quick word of warning, this segment includes words and sentiments that may trigger some listeners. Everyone who spoke to us spoke under the condition of anonymity. Listener discretion is advised. I am a law student. I go to the law school where a lot of the men who overturned women's rights attended. And I think it's unfortunate that this like immense amount of power is concentrated in the hands of people who are so far removed from society and so far removed from the challenges that face particularly disadvantaged women of color um, who this like ban is going to affect the most. And I feel really passionately about getting out and sharing my voice also because I felt really sad and angry today. And it feels a little bit like the law is meaningless. So let's see if I stay in law school. <laughs> the law student highlighted a communal sense of sadness that engulfed the crowd on that warm summer night. Her friend and fellow attendee, an off-duty journalist, explained that reporting wasn't enough for her anymore. She needed to act. I typically do cover abortion rights, women's rights, human rights, queer rights. And we're not really supposed to be seen um, protesting, but um, I decided not to work this event because I am. this is something that I am personally affected by. That's why I started covering 
this topic and um, just being able to be part of it I feel like having my sister here it's really powerful and this is a moment in history where anyone can look back and if you can look back and say I did something I think the most important thing you can do whatever you feel however you're affected if you know how to channel your feelings into positive action just do something And it wasn't just young people that felt fed up. One woman we spoke to explained that she was sick of fighting the same fight year after year. You know, I've been going to abortion rights rallies for whatever, 30-something years, and I hoped never to really have to do this again. We're here at the Reproductive Rights Rally at Washington Square Park. Um, around us are lots of signs. One of them says SCOTUS is in its flop era. Another says I will aid and abet abortion. Another says Republican health care is a hanger. Um, lots of things are going on. There are kids, there are dogs, there are people, and people are angry. Um, there's a sense of, you know, community, but also a sense of just disappointment in the country at this very moment. People of all races, gender identities, and sexual orientations gathered together to protest the decision. Some had been born in decades far before Roe had even been a thought. Some had never lived in a world without access to lawful abortion services. But all of them were brought together in community, responding to the Dobbs decision that was released on June 24th. It felt like the beginning, the genesis, of a new era in the long history of the women's rights movement. For one protester, logic foregrounded other emotions as they cited economic reasons for their pro-choice stance. I personally think that women should have the rights over their bodies because especially like when people are raped or anything, if you have unsafe sex, you should be able to choose what life you give your child and when you bring a child into this world. And many people are struggling with money and can't afford to feed themselves, so why should they be forced to have a child yeah. and put them through those circumstances? Though the crowd that gathered in Washington Square Park was primarily composed of women, many men congregated as well, bringing with them an allyship indicative of the emergence and the urgency of a movement different than those past. For some men present, like in the case of our next interviewee, this allyship was exercised through signs and t-shirts, oftentimes emblazoned with a few choice words aimed at fellow members of their sex. If you want to be an ally and you have a d the best thing you can do is go and get a snip. So I'm here because, uh, because I've stand in solidarity with all my friends who have uteruses, all my friends whose healthcare choices are being violated by this decision. Uh, my friends who have had to make the difficult choice to have an abortion. Um, I'm here because I want people to know that even if, uh, even if you, you know, have a penis, there are ways you can still support the people who have uteruses, uh, the people whose rights are being taken away. Uh, there are ways to stand in solidarity and, um, you know, and, and yeah, that's, that's what I want to be here for. On that June night, new beginnings and means of protest felt palpable. With the reality of Dobbs settling in, there seemed to be this overwhelming sentiment that this was no longer just a women's issue. It was a human one. My sign says forced pregnancy is cruel and unusual punishment, and it is. Pregnancy is immensely dangerous for women in this country, much more than in other countries, because we have a healthcare system, and now we have less access to healthcare. Abortion is not made fewer by making it illegal, it is made unsafe and more women 
more pregnant people will die. For other protesters, the overturning of Roe, specifically Justice Thomas's words in the concurrence, also pointed towards new beginnings, though those of a vastly different sort. The opinion, which drew similarities between Roe v. Wade and past Supreme Court cases that protect the right to same-sex marriage and access to contraceptives, gestures towards a political era potentially dictated by a majority conservative Supreme Court, in which past precedents may be left vulnerable to a more religious and originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Abortion is health care, and health care is a human right. As horrible as it is that they are targeting people with uteruses, it also does not stop here. It will never stop there. I was super alarmed by Justice Thomas's concurrence, talking about going after basically every other case that protects people's individual rights. So. I think it's really important to show that we will not stand for that. These two protesters seem to echo a sentiment that feels tangible throughout the crowd. The Dobbs decision signifies a dangerous era. It is an era that may find its new beginnings in urgency and alarm, foreshadowing a world vastly different than our current one. Especially when considering Justice Thomas's remarks, it seems probable that a post-Roe, pro-choice movement will, more than ever before, include those fighting to protect other rights, from contraception to gay marriage. I'm here because we all took for granted Roe versus Wade. In our generation, we never knew what it was like to live without the rights to dictate our own body. And I am here because our country cares more about our gun control, about every single thing that's happening, and wants to just dictate our bodies and what we do with it. So I am here to use my voice and to say that we will not go quietly into the night, and this is not over. Through all the colorful language, a clearer message emerges. Much of America did take for granted Roe v. Wade. The majority of young Americans can't remember a time when the right to choose wasn't protected by the federal government. The majority of young Americans didn't foresee such radical change occurring in their lifetime. Some, like the following protester, actually utilize the right protected by Roe. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about what brings you to the protest today? What brings me to the protest today is this is actually the first day of Pride in New York City, and this is also one of the saddest days of my life. It's the day that I lost my right to have an abortion. I actually had an abortion about 30 years ago, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it because I took control of my future, and that's why I'm holding a sign that says, I am proud of my abortion, decorated all all pride-like, all for all of us and all of our identities and all of our sexualities. So maybe the movement stemming from a post-Roe world is not so much a beginning as it is an awakening. A reawakening, even, from a deep sleep afforded to American women by the generations who came before, those who fought for a right to choose, and eventually won. Though that right has been lost, one thing is for sure. Since that June night in Washington Square Park, nobody is sleeping. For WPRB, this has been Izzy Jacobson and Clara McQueenie. Coming up on News & Culture, Alan Plotz and Clara McQueenie learn about the value of canvassing as a new election season begins and the risks, benefits, and lessons of the campaign.
This episode comes to news and culture as a piece of reflection that we actually put together after spending a summer in Brooklyn. But on the cusp of a new election cycle with state primaries wrapping up, Claire McQueenie and I zoom back to the summer to take a dive into the world of political canvassing. For WPRB, this is Alan Plotz and Claire McQueenie. Merriam-Webster defines canvassing as a transitive verb, meaning to go through a district or to go to persons in order to solicit orders or political support or to determine opinions or sentiments. The verb is a figurative extension of another act of canvassing, to toss in a canvas sheet for the purpose of sifting. Beginning in the 1520s, the word, French in origin, was more typically taken to mean to examine carefully or discuss, and thus our idea of political canvassing came to be. For Maddie Art and Gabe Slaughter, though, two veteran canvassers, the word has taken on a meaning beyond any tedious etymology description Alan and I can provide. Canvassing, broadly speaking, is when you go out and onto the streets and you try to talk to people about something. I think it can be, it's generally political. I think it can, there's a wide variety of different canvassing. I, I know people canvass to recruit the unions or uh, to uh, work on various issue campaigns. That's Gabriel Slaughter, a field coordinator for a state senate campaign here in District 21 of Brooklyn, where I'm staying. Though he is here today speaking for his own opinions and not those of the campaign, of course. Just a disclaimer, I volunteered on this campaign as well. So the field operation on a campaign is essentially voter contact is what it boils down to. So in the simplest terms, what you're trying to do is talk to um, specific voters in these what are called universes. So some of those might be the voters that you expect to support your candidate and you need to make sure you talk to them so they make a plan to vote and that support manifests in, in terms of votes um, or speaking with voters that you think could be persuaded to support your candidate. Um, so it really is about that voter contact and those like identifications and then having the right conversations. Um, so the way that campaigns do that is through canvassing and phone banking and then what's called relational organizing. That's Maddie Art, who's had campaign roles ranging from intern to field organizer. I'll let her explain her impressive campaign resume, though. In the winter of my senior year of high school, so that was the early months of 2020, um, I was a field intern or high school fellow on Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign. And then um, starting summer 2020, after the pandemic hit, I became a field intern on Sarah Gideon's um, Senate race in Maine against Susan Collins. And then in the spring of 2021, also on the gap year, um, I worked as the field director on a New York City City Council race in Queens. Um, so that meant running all field operations, um, managing a team of high school interns, um, and you know, still doing the work of a field organizer of recruiting volunteers and managing direct voter contact. But then also because it was a very small campaign, just me and the campaign manager and the candidate, and then these interns, um, it meant a lot of other, you know, miscellaneous tasks, which included scheduling the candidate for um, events and um, getting together opportunities for him to speak with voters and being sort of a photographer and anything else you might imagine. 
Politically, things have been feeling somewhat futile for New Yorkers this summer. Even Gabe offers some perspective when it comes to turnout in the local races of Brooklyn. You know, in this election in particular, what's kind of interesting and frightening is that there are two primaries for the New York statewide uh, offices. On June 28th was the first election date. August 23rd is the election date for David Alexis. On August 28th, I'm sorry, on June 28th, the turnout rate was 6%, which is really, really low. And because August 23rd is the unusual date, it's most likely going to be an even lower turnout rate than June 28th, which is kind of insane to consider. I think that was dramatically down from 2021, which I think was somewhere in the 20% range. Um, 2020 itself was a historically high turnout, high turnout year, which was, I think, in the high 20% range. So, you know, the, the, the turnout in any case is, is like abysmal. Maddie has an even broader view on the matter, thanks in part to her work on federal elections. But her stance is one likely shared by many Americans right now. Especially lately, it's really, really hard to put your confidence or all of your confidence into field work um, just because we won the presidency in 2020 um, and we did win the Senate in 2020, you know, narrowly. Um, and we still are where we are. And so it's really, really, really easy to feel like none of it matters. Um, and I have certainly caught myself thinking that and you know I haven't worked on a campaign um, or really done field work since that New York election um, more than a year ago at this point so you know I'm I'm certainly sympathetic um, and at times join those voices saying field is not where we need to devote our efforts and yet both Maddie and Gabe still really really believe in canvassing it happens all the time that I sort of have conversations which kind of rock my world in a small way. The, the, the person who was on my list opened the door. Uh, we had a little conversation. She could barely keep her eyes open, but she just finished her shift. And there were like two kids running around. She explained that she works as a nurse in a hospital. And she was so tired and so exhausted. And she was talking to me about how you know, her bills, she like couldn't really make her, make her bills. She couldn't make her rent. Um, she, she was working like 50, 60 hours a week and looking after two kids by herself. She also had like a disabled parent living in the house. Um, and when I, when I sort of went through the platform of the candidate that we're fighting for, she wholeheartedly supported every single thing, every single thing that, that I said um, and was fully supportive of the whole platform, which was really wonderful to hear. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was kind of really disturbing to like, be talking to someone whose needs was so directly who could, whose needs could be so directly met by the things that we were, that we were trying to fight for. Gabriel also tries to convey this to the canvassers he trains. It's just really important to, to remind the canvassers why they're coming out. 
so and, and to and to be calm and to try and communicate your own enthusiasm so that the canvases could then do that so you know it goes something it goes something like this which is thank you so much for coming out everyone this election is extremely important we uh we are we have we have the honor try to make four passes of every single voter they've identified as likely to vote in the district publicly available data makes this easier going through a list of doors where you are trying to speak to uh people who have been marked as prime voters which means that they've been that they've voted in one of the last three primary elections uh the board of elections Maddie also stays positive about canvassing, even when the world feels challenging. I've lost all of the races I've been on, um, which is really, really kind of unspeakably hard. So, you know, there's a Senate race in in New Hampshire a few years back that the Democrat won by a thousand votes. Like that is truly, these elections can be won on margins that small. Um, and in the New York City City Council race, um, the time that this candidate had had run before, the margin was 100 votes. And that's like, you can talk to 100 people in a day on a campaign. Like that, those, that's what you'd call a field margin, which is when a field operation can truly be the difference between winning and losing. As you can tell, Maddie has a complicated view of our current campaign processes. But ultimately, she found that the connections you make in the field are invaluable, such as the one she mentioned earlier. I can't even count the number of conversations that have I have walked away from just with full body chills, just feeling like the importance of this work so, so, so much. Um, and I can like remember the conversation where I stood outside of this woman's house and she had was very checked out, like was not, didn't even know an election was really happening. And she had so many questions, so many questions and just standing there. And it was like a half hour long conversation um, and answering all of these questions and listening to her talk about her issues with healthcare access and, and all of that and leaving with her, like having a plan to vote you know, it matters whether or not you win because you've given these people a way to channel their passion and their anger and their frustrations um, and really, you know, gives a purpose to their their day-to-day. Between the two of them, Gabe and Maddie have spoken with thousands of voters from Maine to New York to Massachusetts. Each has come away from their individual experience with the profound sense that each conversation, each door knocked, Each voter reach matters. Matters to whatever campaign they're working on, yes, but also matters in a larger way. Matters in the sense that the people they reach when canvassing realize that even in an extraordinarily politically divisive time, their voices are important. The issues they care about are relevant, impactful, agenda altering. In short, to Maddie and Gabe, canvassing informs voters that their vote really does matter. Though Gabe and Maddie have certainly had their fair share of meaningful conversations with voters, they've also both inevitably shared the hilarity and the moments of scary tension that comes along with going door to door. And the other thing with this, like, in the woods kind of canvassing, um, when I was doing this in October and November, um, 
was like your physical safety in terms of hunting season. So I would always canvas in like one of those orange hunting hats. Um, I didn't tell my mom this because it would have, I think, really freaked her out. But so that I didn't, uh, no one thought I was a, a deer. Um, <laughs> and there was one time when I was, I was, I went up to a door um, and I, you know, knocked and you like you wait a few minutes if they don't answer and then you knock again just in case they hadn't heard you um and while I was waiting I could see through the window on the door um through a window at the back of the house so there was like a straight shot to the backyard and the guy was back there doing like target practice or something with like a big gun so I very quickly just decided I would leave um so that's the kind of you know sometimes you run into dogs and all of that. With the moments of connection, there can certainly come some hot takes. In early June, I canvassed like a slightly older woman. She was like maybe in her mid-60s. I think she was kind of bored. So she invited me into her apartment and we, she was mostly doing the talking. And at one point in the conversation, you know, we, we started talking about the, the war in Ukraine at the moment. And, and she said to me that she wants to kill Putin. And the way that she's going to do it is by smearing uh, poison over her boobs. And uh, that's how she was going to take him down. And I, I, thought, I thought it was a good plan. Uh, I, I mean, I, agree, I agreed with her ends. I, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know if it's a good plan, honestly. I think Putin is like kind of staying away from people these days. But who knows? Clearly, the act of canvassing has opened up Gabe and Maddie to an extensive range of ideologies, opinions, and plots to kill Putin. When expanding their definition of this weighty word, would the French have guessed these discourses would range from hunting season to poisonous boobs? As Gabe put it, who knows? For WPRB, this has been Claire McWeeny and Alan Plotz. And finally, I speak to religious leaders about the modern-day culture of cynicism we see all around us and ask how we can change the narrative to find meaning and drive in our journey to improve the world. The last two years have, to many, seemed like the culmination of a decades-long slide into a broader cultural cynicism. Naivetes and optimisms that large portions of our society once appeared to hold have gone to the wayside. We could have had it all. We could have changed the world. We could have achieved the American dream. Or so we thought. That optimism is gone. And I'm not pulling this out of thin air or making a comment about the quote unquote youth nowadays. Data shows the average American no longer has faith in our institutions. According to the American National Election Studies, only 17% of Americans have trust in the ability of government. That's down from 61% in 1966. I'm not saying that the cynicism is unwarranted by any means. Our institutions have failed us, and they aren't broken. They were built to be ineffective at giving the most people the best lives. COVID and its associated casualties and lockdowns stole years of life experience. And the recent political instability in the US has reinforced the idea the systems people are taught exist to protect liberty and provide services actually just serve to reinforce structures of power, discrimination, and exclusivity. What I'm asking is how can we change this narrative? For this Genesis episode of News and Culture, 
I wanted to see if there's a way we can forge a path forward to finding meaning and reason in the struggle to improve our world. And if those learned in counseling, spirituality, and the study of transcendence have insights on this journey upwards. I spoke to two religious chaplains and community leaders at Princeton University to see what they thought about this quest for a new optimism. I am Allison Bowden, and I serve as Dean of Religious Life and of the Chapel. I happen to be a Protestant minister. Bowden serves an institutional role at Princeton, but also a highly personal one. She directs the efforts of the Office of Religious Life as a composite body of chaplains and program staff for a multitude of religious and spiritual traditions. But she's also a chaplain herself for those looking for guidance. I do a lot of counseling with students, but also staff and faculty. I talk to parents. I talk to friends, I talk to community members, um, and I oversee the manifold programming that comes out of ORL. You know, we aren't there to sort of make sure you think or believe one way or another. We really meet students where they are and hope that we are supporting them through the really good and maybe not so good things that they're going through while they're at Princeton. Religion is one of those institutions I was talking about earlier. The kind of thing that has seen a lot of criticism at its place in society and its ability to create positive change in the world. I asked Bowden about this. So I've been doing this work since 1991. Princeton's my fourth institution. So I've really seen a couple of generations of students come out. And before that, I was a student myself <laughs> um, and experienced it in that context. Um, what I think I see is a kind of anti-institutionalism and religions are institutions. That being said, Bowden is distinctly not a cynic about the power of religious communities to help people make meaning. Religion is uh, something that more than 100 years ago, folks in the West predicted would die of irrelevance by the end of the 20th century. And if you just look around the world, um, it has not. <laughs> it is not at all. In fact, Bowdoin sees her job overseeing Princeton's religious life programming as a way that the institution of the university can become more open, diverse, and supportive. We think we are contributing to citizenship, you know, that we're helping Princeton University send its fabulous young graduates uh, out to whatever they feel called to do in the world in a way that has really equipped them to be people in whatever setting they find themselves who just have a basic religious literacy. And because religious and spiritual background and also the absence of a religious or spiritual background is a key identity point for many students and others, um, we believe ourselves to be a part of the university's efforts at diversity. And we believe that when we bring people into dialogue with one another and impart skills for dialogue one with another, that we're really helping students grow their own skills at expressing themselves, at learning how to listen to people who are like them and people who are unlike them. Bowdoin doesn't believe her programming, although it's found at the Office of Religious Life, is necessarily restricted to religious people. Sometimes students will say, okay, the last thing I thought I'd do when I came to Princeton was religious life, but then I found you doing something interesting. I mean, we have any number of people on our campus who just say, faith isn't how I would describe myself, right? That's just too institutional. <clears throat> There's practice, right? It's not about belief. There are rituals that I am a part of. And faith, I don't know, maybe not so sure. Membership in a community, practices and rituals, 
Yep, I'm in. And it's about history and it's about family and it's about who my family is and this is what we do. The project then of Bowdoin and of her office is more than just creating spaces for faith or for practice. It's asking the question we've been asking during this story. How does one create a narrative of who we are, how we find meaning, and how we find our place in this world? The broader way we think about what we do is meaning-making. When we meet a student who may not be, you know, so interested in the practice of faith or something, our question is really, how are you doing your meaning-making? No judgment, right? I, I don't want to place you somewhere on that continuum. I want to ask you where you are, how you look at everything from a sunset to a terminal disease. I'm not trying to give you mine. If you want to ask me what I believe or how I do it, I'm really happy to tell you. But I'm really here to be your conversation partner um, without judgment on how it is you are putting this all together. This journey of creating a narrative or making meaning, as Bowdoin calls it, is not just Bowdoin's career, but a current in her personhood as a minister, but also as a human. Conversations with students have really, you know, really kept me thinking and kept me uh, in movement and in dialogue with my own tradition and with others. And I'm really grateful for that. It was a student some years ago who said to me, I don't think that policy on the environment or anything related practically to the environment is going to change until we help every person think and connect their own spirituality, whatever that is, to a more ecological way of thinking, right? It's not people's intellectual thoughts about the environment or policy-related thoughts about the environment. They're going to change policy on the environment. It's going to be people's spiritual engagement with the environment, wherever that's located. And that was an aha moment for me. I really think that student was absolutely right. Talking with Bowdoin made me curious, though. Making meaning is so personal, but as she said herself, it's informed by more than just one's daily life. Meaning-making is informed by traditions, upbringing, heritage, practice. I grew up Jewish, and I still practice, so I decided to talk to someone in my own family's tradition, a rabbi here in Princeton. My name is Rabbi Gil Steinloff. I am the executive director for the Center for Jewish Life, which is also Princeton Hillel. Rabbi Gill came to our conversation with a perspective more grounded in the tradition in which he studies, practices, and teaches. But he acknowledges that this tradition is one that requires flexibility in its application. The challenge is not just for individuals seeking a spiritual connection. The challenge is for us as religious leaders to uh, take a good hard look at the traditions that we bring and to determine the extent to which we need to reframe how we talk about our tradition, to uh, how we present our religion, the, the, the different aspects of our religion that perhaps haven't been emphasized as much in generations past, which now need to be emphasized more in our time because the needs of the current generations of, of Jewish people and non-Jewish people, depending upon the community, have shifted. Luckily, Judaism is very old, and it has many, many different kinds of resources to draw from. Part of our secret of survival through the thousands of years is we don't try to paint a rosy picture of the world as perfect. In fact, we embrace the opposite. We embrace the truth that the world is imperfect. We embrace the fact that it's broken 
and that what we are all about is tikkun olam. We are about repairing the brokenness of the world. So this is the Jewish way of doing it. All the great religions of the world have their ways of doing it, but I'm very excited about the Jewish way of, of bringing us together around learning and questioning, being willing to question everything together. And in that, in that radical openness, we have the safety to, to discover who we are together. I asked Rabbi Gill the same big question I'd asked Dean Bowden. Where can we find faith, find meaning in our quest to change the narrative? But he wasn't satisfied with this idea that we need faith or concrete meaning to do so at all. Faith as a concept is a very American religious way of talking about a religious tradition. In the Jewish way of looking at the world, the, the, the locus is around doubt. If Judaism had a tagline, it would be question everything. Question everything? God can take it. If God is God, God can take every possible doubt that you might have and in fact would welcome it. So the Jewish way of actually encountering meaning is intellectual honesty, integrity, and most importantly, curiosity and the willingness to question the assumptions that we've inherited. So the locus is not faith, but doubt. Doubt in one's beliefs, but also one's worldview, traditions, and identity is something Rabbi Gill knows well as a mechanism for change. You know, I find that my journey of meaning making is one that continues throughout my life. So the way that I found meaning when I was an undergraduate here at Princeton is a completely different set of circumstances than, than the one I have. People often ask me, you know, how did you decide you became, to become a rabbi? I've noticed that story has changed over the years. I came out as gay when I was 45 years old. And leading up to that, I, I kept that all bottled up inside and very much secret from the world. And, uh, and I was very hurt by, by things in my tradition that, that, that made pronouncements about people like me. And uh, I had to go through a reckoning with that and come out the other side. And it wasn't pretty sometimes. Making meaning, trusting doubt, can these two currents intersect? Can we trust ourselves enough to allow for optimism in the possibility of rewriting our cynical narratives? And can we doubt our preconceived notions, the ideas we've been taught, the ideas we might love, enough to reconsider them in new lights? Rabbi Gill says the locus is doubt, not faith, when it comes to finding meaning. And I don't think this has to exist in contradiction to Dean Bowden's ideas of utilizing one's community, ritual, and traditions to navigate the quest for purpose. Doubt is the journey down into the cavern, but it's the steps down that become our footholds back up when we are able to figure out the story we want to tell. And on that journey upward, of repairing the world and our relationship with it, maybe there's room to reflect to share our journeys, and to turn a single story of optimism into a narrative of change. For WPRB, I'm Adam Sanders. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Charlie Nuremberger, Henry Moses, Clara McWeenie, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Other songs in this episode include Piano Loops 26 by Joseph Press, 
and Paris Gypsy Swing by Dieter van der Westen. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton. Community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.